You're listening to Mystery of 2012, a Sounds True podcast. Episode number four, The Mystery of 2012, Dr. Irvin Laszlo on Tipping Points. This week, I interview world-renowned systems theorist, Dr. Irvin Laszlo. He uses the principles of systems theory as a dynamic framework for understanding the coming changes we face as we approach the year 2012. Listen in to find out why dramatic shifts, called tipping points, in Earth's living system are becoming more and more likely each day. Dr. Laszlo, you've been looking at evolutionary theory and researching global change from a number of different perspectives for a long time. How is it that you first came across this date 2012 when you pinpointed that time as a time of change? I mean, this 2012 date, where did that come from in your work and your calculations? It's quite independent of the prophecies. I just became aware of a coincidence of calculations that I made independently of the prophecies of the end of 2012. Well, the calculations are not all that exact. They would say that probably within four or five years, we'll have a major change, a major phase change in the uh, fate of humanity on this planet because a number of the trends that are now threatening to reach a critical point will probably reach critical point by then. So by the time I looked at the various trends and then looked at the interactions between them, I saw that, well, what appeared to be originally a forecast for the end of the century, then turned out to be the mid-century, then turned out to be within the next 20 years, then between 5 and 10 years. Now it turns out to be between 3, 4, or 5 years. And if you take that seriously, you know, the three, four, or five years, then it could very well coincide with the end of 2012. Does that make sense to you, that it's a coincidence, quote-unquote? Uh, there are no coincidences. I don't believe in pure coincidences. And I think it's more than likely that 2012 does mark a serious turning point in human affairs. And you mentioned that you had your own system of creating calculations before you were exposed to this date, 2012. What is your system for calculating changes in society? Well, it's not so much a separate system as you're taking all the calculations and then doing one thing that other people don't do as taking them all into account at the same time. As long as you take calculations separately, you get a different time horizon. For example, if you take the calculations for the rise of sea level separately, then you get a rise of sea level of maybe 3 meters by 2050. If you then take into account a number of other factors that affect the sea level rise, not just the melting of the ice, but various human factors and other changes in the climate, the change on the ocean currents and that kind of thing, then this gets reduced. And you do this with 10, 12 of these major global trends, you take into account the cross impacts, how one thing impacts on the other, and then the likelihood of this so-called 
point of bifurcation, a point of no return, coming about is becoming much shorter. The time horizon is just becoming shorter. So that's all I basically do. I mean, I don't get a separate calculations. As a systems theorist, I don't believe in just looking at one factor uh, and ignoring the rest. I look at the whole thing. And this whole thing is a natural system, is the biosphere, into which is inserted the human system, humankind, with its economies, with its societies. And if you take all these interactions into account, you've got a very sensitive system that's very prone to break down. So could you tell me what the 10 or 12 measurements were that you used when you have come up with this idea of dramatic change, this prediction of dramatic change? What were the 10 or 12 different systems you were looking at? Those are trends. They look at the accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the, the hothouse effect. You look at the availability of water you know, worldwide, the accessibility of water, and what it does to human health. You look at the level of the rise of the sea. You look at the potential for conflict among different cultures, particularly when these cultures get pressed to the edge of survival so that they are becoming highly frustrated and they want to strike out and the possibility then of maverick violence like terrorism happening and the possibility that there's be reprisals on the level of military action. You look at the possibility of migrations. Migrations already are happening, of course. All of these things are happening already. But when do they reach a point when you can't turn it back, you can't cope with it anymore? Migrations caused by the fact that large portions of the Earth might dry out, drought. Large portions of the Earth will be underwater. Large portions of the Earth will get unusually heavy storms and rainfalls. All of these kind of unfavorable conditions for humankind unfavorable. If you take those into account, then you'll find that humanity suffers. I mean, people, populations will be exposed to very dire conditions. They won't just sit there and die off. I mean, God forbid that they would. But the probability is that these populations will uh, get going, will protest, will will strike back, will try to move to someplace else that they find better conditions of life, better chances of survival. So you basically add all these various factors together, and then you get a very vulnerable system, a system that is close to the point where it reaches this famous point, tipping point, where it's very difficult to turn back, to restabilize. Certain things you can't restabilize again. Just yesterday, a report was published in the United Kingdom which says that scientists estimate that it would take about 100,000 years for carbon levels in the atmosphere to go back to what they were in the second half of the 20th century. Up till now, we thought, well, optimistic estimate was maybe 50, 60 years, a little less optimistic, maybe in a century. But now it says 100,000 years. Not that it makes much difference. I mean, either we survive in the next 50 years or next 100 years or even until 2012 or not. But it just shows that these processes that we are dealing with are highly sensitive and they have tipping points. And these tipping points you have to be very careful with. And what I'm saying is basically that what 2012 may hold for us 
is are a series of tipping points where one tipping point interacts with another. It's like a domino effect, and then the whole system can go into tilt. And how do you define a tipping point, that word, that phrase? Well, there are various definitions. You can have a scientific definition, which is, which is called a bifurcation or bifurcation point. I sometimes have called the chaos point the more popular way to say it is a point of no return. Let me just first give a more scientific definition, then explain it. The scientific definition comes from the modeling of complex systems. When you have a system that has constantly inputs and outputs, in other words, that processes energy and information, then you can drive this system to different dynamic states. And how this system behaves, how, as it called, evolves over time, is mapped in what is known as a phase portrait of the system. This phase portrait is a very specific way of behavior on the system, which is typical for a given system. And it is governed by what is known as attractors. Now, ordinarily, when a system is quite stable, then it has point attractors. If you look at it over time, how the various elements of the system behave, then it always goes back to a single point. And that's a stable system. A dynamic system that could be dynamically stable has circular attractors, attractors which uh, describe a trajectory, but they don't remove themselves completely from the stable circuit. They move back again. But when you have an unstable system, then you have chaotic attractors, also known as strange attractors. And these attractors create entirely new behaviors in the system. Very often, these are not even foreseeable. So a tipping point in a scientific definition is the point when point and circular attractors are diminishing in importance and chaotic or strange attractors are make their appearance. When you simulate a system with the computer, you see that these strange attractors show up all of a sudden. The simulators themselves, the computer experts, say that they come out of the blue. All of a sudden they appear and then they change the behavior of the system, and you can't change it back again. Once you reach that point, there is no going back to the former stability. So when, in a scientific experiment, or as we're talking about here, as all of these trends are coming together in society, in the world, you reach this chaos point or tipping point, are there only two possibilities, either breakdown or breakthrough, or there are multiple possibilities of what can happen at a tipping point or a chaos point? Well, initially, there are a lot of possibilities. Actually, I would say that there are almost an unlimited number of possibilities except one, and that one is to stay where it is because the system has become critically unstable. It can't be maintained in its current condition. But play the scenario forward, run this film forward, as it were, and then you find that some of these scenarios will tend towards stability at a new level, at a different level, a different kind of stability, and some of them will head toward other tipping points. And so ultimately, in the final outcome of these tipping points is a kind of dynamic development that either restabilizes the system in a new condition or it will demolish the stability of the system and make it collapse. So ultimately, the outcome is either breakthrough or breakdown. But how it reaches that, there could be a multitude of ways that it can reach these outcomes. 
In the history of humanity, have we seen other points that you would describe as chaos points that we then went through in a breakthrough-like way, or a breakdown-like way, for that matter? Well, the fact that we are still here shows that we haven't broken down all the time, and certainly didn't break down completely. In history, these chaos points involve societies, entire societies, cultures, civilizations. We have seen now a number of studies. Jared Diamond, for example, has shown the frequent breakdown of civilizations in history. We have seen that these breakdowns sometimes lead to the disappearance of a civilization, but more frequently to the transformation. Practically disappearance in the Inca, Mayan, Aztec civilizations that were almost absorbed in the Spanish Empire at the time. And vestiges have remained. Of course, now we are trying to safeguard those. Completely absorbed civilizations were very often uh, native, traditional tribes that have been absorbed and simply disappeared in the wake of the conquerors. Uh, some have disappeared rather mysteriously, like the civilization at Eastern Island, which apparently was a flourishing civilization that has created environmental conditions where the people couldn't survive anymore. There could be a number of reasons. There could be conquest, there could be internal instability, there could be environmental changes. A number of things can happen. But all these transformations, all these rather tipping points, normally lead to a transformation to a new level. The latest one, the latest very striking one, I would think, is the disappearance of the communist empire in Eastern Europe, the Soviet empire. A real sudden tipping point. In 1989, East Europe you know, became liberated from the Soviet domination. By 1990, the Soviet Union as an entity has disappeared, and the most powerful political party on earth up to that point, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, not only was disappeared, but was actually outlawed. So it was a complete transformation. Now, if you look at it as a Soviet system, you would think that system broke down. But you look at it as people, as the Russian people, as the Ukrainian people, and, and so on, then you see that these people are still there. They have transformed their civilization. They have adopted a new system. So a little bit depends on how you look at things. Not all civilizations die out. I mean, the members die out. They transform and they take out a different hue, a different structure, a different dynamic. And that's basically also the tipping point that we face. There is a very negative scenario before us which says we could die out, we could become extinct because of very catastrophic changes like a runaway heating up of the atmosphere, for example. It's a possibility. We are not there. We don't know whether it will come or not. But that could lead to conditions that would make the planet almost uninhabitable for humans. Another scenario, of course, is nuclear catastrophe, radioactivity, which will make the planet unsuitable for higher forms of life. So all these are possibilities, but I think the real concern that we should have is how we manage to transform the civilization, the system, the economic, the political, the social system of the population of 6.7, possibly more billion people today so that they can live on this planet, they can live sustainably and peacefully, which is possible, but it does call for a basic transformation. And you feel that the 
tipping point of 2012 is of a different magnitude than any of these other historic tipping points that you're referring to? The next tipping point is a very different kind. It recalls to me a little bit Einstein's saying when he says he didn't know with what weapons World War III would be fought, but he knows what weapons World War IV would be fought for. He says the bow and the arrow, because it's a qualitative change. We simply can't survive, can't make do with the same kind of instrument, the same way that we've been living as before. Now, the basic difference, let me give you a number of factors. The basic differences are these. One, that it's global. Up till now, these tipping points were local or regional. Now, because of the interdependence of human societies and because of the dependence on the natural ecosystems, which are now teetering at the very edge of their equilibrium, because of these conditions, uh, the entire human community is heading toward a tipping point. Another difference is that here not one factor is operative, not just water, not just the climate, not just cultural intolerance and war and so on, or pollution, but all of these factors together. So it's a system-wide tipping point, a system-wide that is, has multiple elements and it's global in its outreach. Therefore, this has never been the case before. We have never confronted this level of challenge before in the history of humanity. As a systems theorist, you mentioned, you know, many of the changes in the biosphere, in climate and sea level, population, etc. I'm curious how you see those changes interpenetrating with changes in human consciousness. I mean, here it sounds true we're publishing programs that help people in their spiritual development. And I'm curious what you think the relationship is between these changes in the ecosphere and the changes in human consciousness and spiritual awakening? Well, here you have to raise the question, what is the ultimate determinant of human behavior and of the operation of the social and ecological systems in which we live? I believe that the determinants are values. And then you can ask yourself, well, what determines values in turn? And then the answer would be, yes, consciousness. So when you come right down to it, the ultimate point, the ultimate determinant that decides how we act, which way we go, whether we become extinct, go down to breakdown, or whether we go up toward the breakthrough, depends on the kind of consciousness we have. Then, of course, we can speculate what kind of consciousness do we need, and that's possible to do. But as a basic factor, let me just make that very clear. I think it's not money, it's not technology, it's not political power or military power. Ultimately, the determinant is consciousness, because consciousness then determines how we use money, how we use military power, how we use our wealth, etc. Do you think that the changes in the atmosphere and the threats that we now face as a human society are driving the development and awakening of consciousness? That there's a feedback loop there of some kind? Absolutely driving, yes. Crisis drives change. I mean, it seems very obvious to me that 
the final election results of the November 2008 elections that brought in Obama was partly due to the financial crisis because it created an awareness of the requirement for change. And therefore, when you have a candidate who says, I'm basing my whole strategy on change, then of course that is favored by a crisis. So there is a crisis, a breakdown, or a threat of a breakdown in a social order is a very powerful driver. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that there is nothing comparable to it. A stable system, as long as a system is not threatened, as long as it's not in crisis, is very difficult to change. There are spontaneous innovations, like there are spontaneous mutations, but they usually take a long time to come through. The system tends to defend itself. You know, when you have an innovator in a stable system, that innovator tends to be locked up or excommunicated, to use the religious term, to be isolated from the rest of society because it's a threat. Change is viewed as a threat in a stable system. But when the system doesn't work, when it becomes unstable, then change becomes a very welcome factor, and then change becomes possible. It's for good reason, actually, that in Chinese uh, culture, uh, the whole concept of crisis, which is expressed by the Chinese word for crisis, is weiji. That means a combination of danger and opportunity. Wei apparently means danger, and ji means opportunity or chance. So the Chinese have learned this because in the 5,000-year history, they underwent a number of these convulsions from one dynasty to another. It's usually quite a bloody period until the new level of stability was established, and then it went, underwent again, usually in four, 500-year periods. But we have got to learn it as well, that a crisis drives change, makes change possible, and it opens the way to innovation and to development. You've talked about this period that we're in as a decision window, and I'm curious if there's a, any kind of mathematical formula. Do a certain number of people need to make certain kinds of decisions about how they express their consciousness in the world? Do a certain number of people need to rise to a certain level of consciousness of our connection as a human species? Is there a number in this decision window that will make the difference for breakdown or breakthrough? There surely is a number, but we don't know it. We don't know what it is. And I don't think we can know it because we would need the powers of a divine being to be able to calculate all the factors that go into determining this number. Because it's not a mechanical system. It's not even just a biological system. It's a social psychological system. You're dealing with conscious human beings, with their own personalities, with their own quirks, with their own preferences, their own cultural backgrounds. All of these are imponderables. We can't just simply calculate them. So there is a number which is expressed usually as a critical mass. In a physical process, like a nuclear process, you know when you have a critical mass of atoms reaching a level of radioactivity, then a chain reaction gets going, and then the entire system then blows up or changes. And something similar is happening when you reach a crisis point, a chaos point, or a tipping point. But we don't know what it is. 
speculations are that it could be 1% or 1% of the human population. It reaches a higher level of awareness, maybe that starts spreading. We know that there are some indications. We know that when people meditate in a given environment, this Maharishi effect, so-called Maharishi effect, then when you reach about 2% of a of a city's population or a community's population or deep meditators, then all of a sudden crime rates seem to drop, divorce rates drop, there are fewer suicides. Altogether, these vital statistics of human well-being seem to improve. But again, this is one very specific case of meditation and of 2%. What does it take for a human civilization with now the 6.7 or possibly more billion people to transform their consciousness. What does it take to spread and how long does it take to spread? We don't know. We do know that such a spreading has started already. The process is there. We don't know whether it's reached a critical mass to make a real difference on the global level and to make a real difference in time. That is to say whether a real process of change can get underway before the rule falls in, so to speak, before these tipping points at the end of 2012. When you talk about a critical mass, that could, of course, be made up of the power of consciousness versus the number of individuals, meaning it might not be a specific number of people, because how would you measure the intensity of the consciousness of even less individuals, for example? Well, not just any kind of consciousness will create a positive change. I mean, it has to get the right kind of consciousness. By right kind, I don't mean to be prescriptive. I just mean the kind of consciousness that makes people aware that they are not isolated individuals enclosed in their skin and that their mind and spirit is not enclosed in their cranium but that they are connected to others like a cell is connected to other cells in a living organism. And that is sometimes known as a transpersonal consciousness, as a kind of consciousness which is open to information, open to relationships, which becomes aware of what is often expressed as oneness, but in a certain way expressed also the whole idea of love. Love is a tendency, a desire, a trend toward belonging, toward oneness. And that kind of consciousness is the kind that can create relationships among people, that can create empathy, and that's the kind of consciousness that could be powerful enough to change. Of course, if there are some very powerful people like this, spiritual leaders, they can, around them, create a field of new consciousness, and that can spread faster, of course. So obviously, you're quite right, the level of intensity does make a difference, but it's the kind of consciousness that's important above all, from the ego-enclosed, selfish, self-centered kind of consciousness to the transcendental, transcendent and transcending and transpersonal consciousness. I think that's the key to our future. Mm -hmm. Now, as a systems theorist, we've talked about some of the systems in the biosphere and even the role of human consciousness. In these 2012 dialogues that we've been having, we've been talking to some people who are talking about the influence of galactic fields and 
alignments with various star systems, etc. And I'm curious if your work has included the impact of astronomical forces, unseen forces, the role potentially of unseen beings, that kind of thing. I'm aware of it. I'm acquainted with these ideas. As a scientist, I don't know how we can actually test these experiments with them, but certainly there are effects and there are indications that there are powerful influences acting on the human psyche and that it's not accidental that there's a rapid process of waking up. So I'm well aware of this. There are astronomical data that suggest that there are going to be real disturbances in the electromagnetic field and the geomagnetic field, a possibility of the reversal of the poles of the planet by the end of 2012. A number of things seem to come together at the end of 2012. There are also indications that our entire solar system is entering into a higher level of energy zone in the cosmos, more photons in cosmic space in this area which some sensitives say that we can see it as entering a cloud of light. So there are a number of things. Some of them can be scientifically calculated. Uh, many of them require this kind of intuition that sensitive people have. That they all seem to point, and probably not entirely coincidentally, point in the direction that there is a major change awaiting us in that period toward, toward the end of 2012. Now, Dr. Laszlo, you've been working with a lot of these ideas for quite some time, for many decades, and I'm curious to know what has happened in the last 10, 20 years that has surprised you, that has seemed different than perhaps you would have expected earlier in your career. Well, the processes are speeding up. I didn't realize that they actually they are speeding up to this extent. So individually, many of these things are not calculable, not predictable. But in the totality, what we have is a human global civilizational process. A global civilization is taking shape before our eyes. There's a global civil society emerging. Uh, the political system is still based on national power very often, but in certain respects is overcoming it. For example, the development of the European Union is to some extent faster than some skeptics, Eurosceptics, would have foreseen. I was hoping that it might move in this direction. The level of information on the world is surprising. Who would have foreseen? that uh, you would have this level of communication, the cell phone revolution, the internet revolution. But really you have a global brain emerging in the world made up of all these cells that are intercommunicating with individual human beings. This is faster, and this was really not really foreseeable. I recall not too long ago, maybe in, in the mid-1960s, having a teleconference with uh, some communications experts and another set of experts, I was asked to be one of them in Hamburg, Germany, and talking about what would happen if you allow this network of networks to appear and be accessible by the public. 
which was tentatively known as the Internet, but people didn't even know what it was. But some people just mentioned this as a possible name for it. And at that point, you know, it's incredible. And now, of course, we can hardly live without the Internet. I mean, there are certain things that you can only do through the Internet. I was just coming in from the airport to the studio where we are talking, and I see on the side of a bus a big sign that you can book a cheap ticket on the bus, but only through the Internet. So nowadays there are a number of things. You can't even use any other means to get what you want. You have to get on the Internet. And all this is a phenomenon that was not foreseeable, that was surprising. Mm-hmm. You know, several times you've mentioned the 6.7 billion people that are currently on the planet. And I'm curious if your research and investigations have come up with a certain ideal number of people that the Earth can support, a limit to how many people. Upper limits would probably be under 10 billion. That really would be pushing it. I think 8 billion would have to work because if we are going to stop at anywhere less than 8 billion, that means that we would have to suffer a population dieback of catastrophic proportions. So we would have to prepare to support up to 8 billion people on this planet, but in maybe 20, 30 years. That's a very big question whether we can do that, whether we can even support the just under 7 billion that we now have. But it's unlikely that the physical endowments of the planet would would be capable of supporting, providing sufficient living space, sufficient physical resources for much more than 8 billion people. Not a question of energy. Energy, there is plenty. You might be surprised to hear me say that, but it's an incredible flow of energy that the planet is based in all the time. They're using a tiny, tiny fraction of that. And as we learn to use more of it, this energy flow from the sun, we could support practically an unlimited population. But people don't live on energy alone, obviously. You have to grow the food. Our bodies still have a DNA structure, have information that has been around now for 100,000 years or so. And we can't change it at will. We can make a little cuts and little manipulations here and there, but we can't rewire ourselves not in the foreseeable future. So we will still have to live on the planet. We have to take natural nourishment to live in the biosphere and use the resources of the biosphere. So when you take all these things into account, then you would say, yes, we better try to keep up to 8 billion people alive. But that seems to be the upper limit, and that is a very, very great challenge already. So we're reaching that upper limit because of a lack of food and water supply, if it's not energy that we'll need? Living space, quality of air, quality of the soil, availability of water, of course, not just the amount of water, it's the quality of water. It has to be clean water, non-polluted, etc. The temperatures have to be at the right range. Think of the Earth, sometimes called the Gaia system, sometimes called Gaia, the living system a quasi-living system. Think of it as an organism that has its own balances. If you press it too far, it will change. It will move into another kind of equilibrium. The system itself will survive, but it will no longer provide favorable conditions for a human population, certainly not for a large human population. 
how far do you press it? That's the question. How many people it can it can uh, keep alive? You press it too high, to too high uh, energy levels, too high temperature levels, for example, too much drying out, too much heating up, then there'll be less and less people able to survive on this planet. Already some estimations by James Lovelock, the founder of the Gaia theory, speak of five to six hundred million people who will be the upper limit for living on this planet for the next 10,000 years. And now, of course, we have 6,700 million people. So this would be an enormous, enormous dieback, which is very questionable whether the rest of the population could survive when that many people would simply die out. This term that you've introduced, that we're in a decision window between now and the approximate time of 2012, I'm sure for some people they feel like, well, you know, I can make decisions about my life and the state of awareness that I'm in and how I connect with others. But that just doesn't seem like it will be powerful enough to make a difference on the kind of level that you're talking about when we're talking about population control and things that seem so out of my ability to influence. How would you respond to that? Back to the two notions. One is the beautiful saying by Gandhi, which says that be the change that you want to see in the world. The other one is what is known as the butterfly effect. When you have an unstable system, a critically unstable system, with these chaotic attractors that I spoke about a moment ago, then very small changes can create very large effects, can change the dynamic of the system. So don't give up everybody's behavior can make a big change. The famous anthropologist Margaret Mead said, never doubt the power of a small group of people to change the world. And then she added, nothing else ever did. So there we are, you know, on the last analysis, it's what people do, what you and I and others around us do, how we behave. We've got to wake up to the fact that we are living on a finite planet, we are living on a living planet, we have to interact with it as with a living organism, and we cannot go beyond its limit of what it can tolerate. Because then it will change. It will go on, but we may not go on. Mm -hmm. Can you explain the butterfly effect from a scientific perspective and how that's not just you know, a piece of poetry, that the flap of a butterfly affects the weather patterns halfway around the world? I mean, it sounds nice, but is that really true? Well, not literally. I thought the flap of a butterfly would really create a big change in the weather. But in principle, there is something like this. Think of it in the following way. There's a nice image one can use. Think of a whirlpool in a river, a small river, a brook. And at one point, it creates a whirlpool. The water goes round and round as it flows down. Then insert a leaf into this whirlpool and watch the movement of the leaf before it reaches the whirlpool, it moves pretty predictably. It moves along the river. It can sometimes get into the back eddy and then it gets stuck. But as long as it moves in the mainstream, it's moving down with the river. It gets into the whirlpool, and the whirlpool is a chaotic system. Then the leaf starts going around and around. Now, the leaf might keep going forever around and around except that there's a very tiny effect. So you blow on it a little bit, or there is a little pebble falling in or another leaf coming in. It can be a tiny little effect, and it's just enough to push that leaf a little bit further. 
one direction or another, all of a sudden the leaf either then will fall back into the center or will move out of the whirlpool and will disappear downstream. So a chaotic system is such a sensitive system. A tiny little input will change it. And every system that we're dealing with has inputs because they're all systems that interact with their environment and they all receive pushes and pulls of various kinds. Now when the system is stable, it rebalances these pushes and pulls. It keeps its equilibrium. But when it's unstable, any little push and pull can create a decisive change so the system all of a sudden jumps out of its equilibrium and moves into an entirely different kind of a trajectory. Mm -hmm. And just one final question. You've been working on these questions of evolution and what happens at a point of chaos for so many years. And I'm curious both what motivates you and what sustains you. I don't know. <laughs> it is something is motivating me, something is driving me. I feel that we are living in the midst of it. We are living in a dynamic system that's moving toward the critical point. It's a very exciting process. If you are pessimistic, then of course you say, well, what's the use? But if you are pessimistic, you're not really a good system thinker because then you look only on one side. You look at it as it was a mechanistic system that's bound to collapse. You're dealing with a quasi-living system, a society, an ecology, the whole planet. And this is a very exciting process. All of a sudden, we have this tremendous power to decide our destiny. It's been said that our generation is the first that can decide whether it will be the last. But I could also say that our generation is the first that can decide whether it will be first generation of a new civilization. This is now in our hands. We're living in this chaotic system and it won't stay in it forever. We either break down or we break through. And the difference is literally in our hands. It's exciting and it's wonderful and it's sustainable and it drives me and I'm sure that it drives others who realize that this is the case. Love, 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 love.